Thomas, the disciple of our Lord, does not enjoy much favor and respect in Christian circles. Very few Christians would go around saying, Thomas is my favorite of all the disciples of the Lord. In fact, we show our displeasure for Thomas by calling him Doubting Thomas. And as someone reminded us, we call him Doubting Thomas so often that we have now come to believe that his first name is Doubting. We do that because he represents in Scripture one who wavered in faith. But a clear and hard look at Scripture and also at our lives reveals that Thomas is not alone in doubting. For from ancient times, believers have found that particular instances in their lives that they have doubted God, doubted His goodness, doubted His mercy, or some other attribute of God. One of those ancient saints who had a spell of doubt regarding the goodness of God was Asaph, one of David's chief musicians, one of those who worshipped before the Lord and led the people of God in worship. We find his dilemma in Psalm 73, which begins book 3 of the Psalter. There are five, the Psalter or the book of Psalms is divided into five books. And this is 73, Psalm 73 begins the third book. In fact, there are many ways to divide the text. My intention is not to expound the entirety of the text, but merely to point out in broad strokes how the text breaks down. First of all, there's a statement of affirmation in verse 1 regarding the goodness of God. Truly, God is good to Israel, to such who are pure in heart, the psalmist says. But in verse 2, all the way to verse 16, the psalmist describes his dilemma, his particular problem with the wicked, and his response to the wicked. In verse 17 to 26, we have a change of tone in the psalm, where the psalm, psalmist rejoices in God. And then the passage concludes in verses 27 and 28. Well, what is the problem that the psalmist faced? Well, he tells us in verse 2, that even though he affirmed the goodness of God, he had come to a point in his life where his feet had almost stumbled, where he stepped had almost slipped. This is metaphorical language for the spiritual crisis in which he found himself. His feet had almost stumbled. His step had almost slipped. What he's saying is he came close to spiritual ruin to abandoning the faith of Israel and the people of God. And what was particularly difficult? Well, he tells us that the reason that he found himself in this spiritual crisis was because he envied the wicked, the ungodly. In Scripture, those who are unwicked are seen as those who are opposed to the ways of God, who will not surrender to him, to the Lord. In fact, when he describes the wicked, 
there are at least three particular descriptions that he gives. First of all, he tells us that the wicked were prosperous. Here are people who do not serve the Lord, who do not love the Lord, and yet they are prospering. He describes their prosperity in various ways. He says that they do not have troubles like ordinary people. That everything that they desire, they have it. In fact, he could describe them. He says that they, they have grown so fat that the fat was causing their eyes to bulge. That's how good life was for them. It could not get any better. You see that in verse 7, for instance, where he clarifies. He says, their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than their heart could wish. Everything they desire, it seemed, they were able to possess. Secondly, not only were the ungodly, the wicked, prosperous, they were proud, they were arrogant, they made boastful claims. And so, in verse 3, he says, I was envy, envious of the boastful. They were bragging about their successes. He talks about them as proud, as boasters. In verse 6, he says, Therefore pride serve as their necklace. The way we wear jewelry, they were wearing pride as in, in the way we wear jewelry. They were adorned with pride. So he describes them not only as prosperous, but as proud. Thirdly, he describes them as violent. In verse 6, violence covers them like a garment. In other words, they were using their influence and their power, their wealth, to act unjustly, particularly with regards to the poor, to gobble up their lands, to make a meal of them. They were acting in violence. And the psalmist, when he looks at this, he considers this to be patently unfair. Because he then contrasts the wicked, the unbeliever, the ungodly in their prosperity, in their pride, and in their violence with his own life. And you see that in verse 12, where he begins to talk about himself. Behold, he says, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. Their riches increase. And then he says, well, look at me. Let's take a look at my life. And he says... Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain. I have washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. He's simply saying, I have sought to serve the Lord, to live an upright and ungodly life before God. And what do I get instead for it? Every day I am being chastened, I am being disciplined, I am suffering a hardship. I'm doing my best to please God, my best to serve God, and I am suffering. And the ungodly, who does not respect God, who does not love God, this man, they are being blessed, they are prosperous, they are living in contentment and ease, and I'm seeking to serve God, and I am in great distress and troubles. It's unfair. It's wrong. That's how he sees it. He's flummoxed 
by the prosperity of the wicked and the suffering of the righteous. But all of this changes when he went up to the temple. Because in verse 17, this is the hinge upon which the passage turns. All things now change. It doesn't mean that all his questions have been answered, but something significant occurs. He says that he was greatly distressed. It was too painful for him to see the wicked prospering and himself suffering in seeking to serve God. He says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. The writer makes it clear that when he went to the temple to worship, things became clear. He understood certain things. He received certain lessons in the presence of God. One of the lessons he learned was that, for starters, that the prosperity of the ungodly is short-lived. That however successful and secure those who do not fear God or serve Him may appear, they are living in a slippery place. For in due time, the Lord will bring them suddenly to destruction. He learned that. That the life of the ungodly is particularly precarious. Because the, the anger of God, the wrath of God abides upon them. And he in due time will bring them to destruction. His terrors will be unleashed on them. But he also saw in the temple something else. He also learned another significant lesson. He also came to recognize God as his portion. A fact which he states in verses 25 and 26. Our intention is to consider this theme of God as the portion of his people. For the psalmist says in verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and heart fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And it is this that I want us to look upon, this description of God as the portion of his people. Really, there are two primary thoughts I want to leave with you. First of all, I want to consider what it means for God to be the portion of his people. And secondly, I want to consider why God is a portion of his people and then draw a few applications. First, God, described as the portion of his people, signifies that he is the most valuable possession to them. God is therefore the portion of his people to signify that he is their most valuable possession. The psalmist says, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is a theme that occurs in the Psalms, where the psalmist identifies God as his portion, particularly David in Psalm 16. For example, he could, he could say, O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot in Psalm 16 verse 5. Or in Psalm 119, verse 57, David could say, You are my portion, O Lord. I have said, I will keep your word. Again, David identifies God as his portion in Psalm 142, verse 5. 
He says, I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. But outside of the Psalms, particularly in the prophetic literature and the prophetic Jeremiah, also identifies God as the portion of his people. And Jeremiah, in distinguishing God from idols, in chapter 10, verse 16, coins a new name for God, where he says of God, the portion of Jacob, the portion of Israel. He's calling God the portion of Israel. The portion of Jacob is not like them, that is, idols. For he is the maker of all things. And Israel is a tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. He, he will say the same thing in chapter 51, verse 19, where he calls God the portion of Jacob, the portion of Israel. He would later state, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him, in Lamentation 3.27. Now this term, portion, the Lord is my portion, helek simply refers to an allotment. It refers particularly to the portion of land that Joshua distributed to the tribes of Israel. When they went into the land, each tribe was given a portion of the land. They were given a plot of land, some territory for themselves. Only one tribe, the tribe of Levi, was not given land. And we read in Deuteronomy 10 verse 9 where the Lord says, Therefore, Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his portion, or the Lord is his inheritance, as the Lord your God said to him. Deuteronomy 10 verse 9. Now what Asaph does, one who comes from the tribe of Levi, he spiritualizes the language of portion. He says, God is my helic. God is my portion. God is my possession. God is my most valued possession. That even though the tribes of Israel have received land, and some of it wonderful and beautiful land, God is my portion. God is my chief, my valued possession. But we need to probe this a bit further. Having said that God is his possession, his helic, what does it mean? First, I want to suggest to you that for the psalmist, God was his singular portion or possession. When I say singular, I'm not referring now to one. I'm not arguing that God was the only possession he had. But I'm using singular in the sense that God was his chief, his foremost God was his most prized possession. And you, 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 you get a sense of this when he cries out with joy, having been in the temple, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none on earth that I desire apart or beside from you. What is he saying there in verse 25? The question is rhetorical, whom have I in heaven but you? But the answer that this question demands is none. That although heaven is the aspiration of the people of God, is the place of, of angels, is the place of justified saints, it is the place of delectable blessings, 
blessings that are too numerous and too wonderful to be able to quantify. Even though heaven is the home of the people of God, the writer says that there is none in heaven that he desires above God. Because you see, heaven is not heaven without God. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none on earth that I desire apart from you. You see, this this language of heaven and earth signal totality. And he's saying in all of God's reality, in the spiritual sphere or the physical sphere, I desire none. This term desire is really more than just having a desire. It is to delight in. It means I delight in no other apart from you. I take no greater pleasure in anything or anyone apart from you. God is his singular portion. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none on earth that I desire apart from you. But I want us to look at what this means. God is not only his portion. God is his singular portion, but God is his personal portion. He says... My flesh and heart fail, but God is a strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see, God is a singular portion because there is an all-sufficiency in God. God is a satisfying and a sufficient portion. He desires none other else because none is greater than God. None can satisfy the heart. And so he desires God as a singular portion. But he says, God is my portion forever. You see, he identifies God as his personal portion. Now, it is easy to gloss over the language. This little word there in the Hebrew, my portion. One word with a suffix. Noun with a suffix. God is my portion. Helic with a suffix. We can gloss over it very easily. But it is considerably weighty. Because when you think of this, God gives himself, the infinite God, gives himself as a possession to an infinite people, to a finite people. The infinite God gives himself to a finite people. The psalmist can say, God is my portion. God gives himself as a gift. And the question is, how can the creature possess the creator but even though this is mysterious nevertheless this is what he's saying that I am in possession of the infinite God though I am finite it's an amazing thought that we may be said to possess God not only does God possess us but we possess him we possess him as an intimate and inexhaustible gift it is he who has given himself to be possessed by us God is his personal portion. The Lord, he says, is the strength of my heart and my portion, my portion, forever. And thirdly, God is not only his singular portion and his personal portion, God is his everlasting portion. You see, Asaph recognized God to be eternal. God is infinite in his being and infinite with regards to time. And precisely because God is infinite in his being, who has no beginning and no ending, 
whose life can never come to an end. God, who has given himself to him as his personal possession, is therefore an eternal, everlasting possession. You see, it stands in contradistinction to the wicked because they will be parted from their wealth. Either their wealth will run out or death will take them, but man and his wealth will one day be parted. But because God is an everlasting God, he is an everlasting portion for his people. And you read in the New Testament where Peter captures some of this when he says in chapter 1 of 1 Peter 3 to 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, unto an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. God is an incorruptible, undefiled, unfailing inheritance and portion of his people. So what have we seen? We have seen then in verses 25 and 26 that for the psalmist, God is his most valuable possession. God is a singular portion. God is his personal portion and his everlasting portion. But it leads us now to a second issue. The question is why does he value the Lord as his most valuable portion? And the answer simply is this, because for the psalmist, God is the supreme good. He values the Lord as his most prized possession, his portion, because God is the supreme good. The psalmist begins the psalm with an affirmation about the goodness of God. Verse 3 of verse 1, he says, of Psalm 73, he says, Surely, truly, God is good to Israel and to such who are pure in heart. It's, it, it's a confession that comes from the ancient people of God, an acknowledgement of God's goodness. You notice how he ends the psalm in verse 28? He, ends this, he begins the psalm with the word good. He ends it with the word good. Therefore, we say that the word tov, or good, brackets the psalm. But it is good for me to draw near to God. The psalmist believes in the goodness of God. But it was at this point that his faith was particularly challenged. Because the circumstances around him seemed to contradict what he believed and what he affirmed. Scripture affirms the goodness of God. In the Psalms, we hear, for instance, in Psalm 34, verse 8, O taste and see, for the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who puts his trust in him. Or in that magnificent Psalm, Psalm 105, the psalmist says, For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures for all generations. In Psalm 135, this same truth is emphasized. Praise the Lord. For the Lord is good. Sing praises 
to his name, for it is pleasant. We read, the Lord is good to all and his tender mercies are over all his work. Our Lord Jesus in the gospel says, no one is good but God alone. Now when we talk about God as good, we mean then first and foremost that God is truly good. And when the scriptures affirm that God is good, it is used first and foremost in a metaphysical sense. It is used then ontologically. That is, it is referring to the being or to the character of God. That God, first of all, is good because he, he, he possesses within him all perfection. Put differently. That all virtues, attributes, are in God comprehensively and perfectly. He is the source of all that is true, that is kind, that is gracious, that is beneficial, that involves love and grace. He possesses all of these attributes in their totality, in perfection. God is good. But conversely, there is nothing in him that is evil, that is wicked. God is good. God is ontologically. God is in his being good. But the goodness of God refers not only to the being of God, it refers to what God does. For God is not only in his being good, but he's good not only in terms of his character, but in what he does. So his works are good. And so James could say, every good and perfect gift come from above, from the Father of light in whom there is no shadow of turning. God is good. The psalmist affirmed that. He affirms the goodness of God. That God is good in his being and good to his creature. Good providentially. The scripture tells us he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. And send rain on the just and on the unjust in Matthew 5, 45. But how does the psalmist see the goodness of God? It's one thing for him to affirm at the beginning of the psalm that God is good. And particularly to Israel and to those who are upright in heart. But how does he see the goodness of God? Remember, what is his problem? His problem is he's serving God, doing his best to please God, and he's suffering for it. At least it appears that way. The wicked who isn't serving God, they are being blessed. And so the question he's asking, well, I believe this, that God is good. But where's the evidence? In the middle of the psalm, you will find that the psalmist recognizes the goodness of God. And, and by the way, it is only after he had been to the temple that he comes to now see the goodness of God manifested to him. He has questioned the goodness of God. The wicked are prospering. The righteous are suffering. But when he went to the temple, he saw that God is good. And he saw the goodness of God manifested to him in at least three ways. First of all, the goodness of God was manifested to him in his presence. You notice what he says in verse 23. After rebuking himself, because when he went to the temple, he saw the end of the wicked, and he began to rebuke himself. I'm like a beast. He says, I'm totally ignorant. I'm, an, I'm, I'm really dumb. I'm a stupid man. 
for questioning God. That's what he says essentially in verse 21 and 22. Thus my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. But he doesn't remain there. He goes on to talk about the Lord. And then he says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. He's been challenging God. Well, I don't know, Lord. I can't understand how good you are when I can't see it in my life. But there in the, in the temple, the scales fell from his eyes. He says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. He realizes that God's goodness is expressed, manifested in his presence. I want you to notice also in our passage that there is a connection made in verse 28 between God's goodness and God's presence. For in verse 28 he says, but it is good for me to draw near to God. You see, there is goodness in the presence of God. It's good for me to draw near to God. What the writer is saying then is that in the temple he learned about the goodness of God. Even though he was doubting God's goodness because of the prosperity of the wicked, he learned that God was good. And, and, and I, want to, I want you to understand that there is more nuance here. Because not only does he learn that God is good, he also learned that God's goodness must not be measured simply by material possession. We can't go out thinking that God is good only when he blesses me with a lot of money and a lot of provisions. God's goodness is revealed in often intangible and invisible ways like his presence. And so the writer says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. That in all of his struggles and all of his questioning and all of his doubting and all of his grieving, there was one absolute certainty that God had not abandoned him. God was there with him as he struggled and as he wrestled with life. God was there in the midst of a storm. He had not abandoned him. That's the goodness of God. But you know, he saw the goodness of God not only in the presence of God. He saw the goodness of God in the power of God. Because in verse 23, he goes on to say of God, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. The word hold is actually far stronger. It means to grasp, to seize. And what he says is that God, you have grasped me. You have gripped me by my right hand. You see, his feet had almost stumbled. He'd almost slipped. But the reason he did not apostatize, the reason he did not turn back, it is because he was gripped. The almighty power of God was evident in his life, keeping him in the midst of his doubt. I want you to understand that, that even godly people can question. But it is God who keeps us from cynicism and despair and ultimately from apostasy. He says not only... Am I continually with you, but you grasp me by my right hand. You hold me by my right hand. You are preserving me. You are protecting me. You are my security. In verse 26, you know, he identifies God as the one who powerfully secures him. He says there, my flesh and my heart fail. But God 
is the strength of my heart. The, the term here, strength, in the phrase strength of my heart, is really literally the rock of my heart. God is the rock of my heart. God is the one who gives me true stability, true perseverance. It is God who by his power preserves me. But you know the psalmist saw the goodness of God not only in the presence of God and in the power of God, but he saw the goodness of God in the counsel of God. For in verse 24 he says, not only is God continually with him and he's continually with God, God only does God preserve him, holding him by his right hand. He says, but you will guide me with your counsel. So God guides him, guides him by his will and by his purpose. The wicked were prospering, but he was not abandoned. In the midst of it all, the hand of God was upon him. And God was guiding him. God was leading him through all of the turmoil and the maze of life. The counsel of God, the will of God, the plan of God, the purpose of God was continually being unfolded on his behalf. He said, you guide me with your counsel. That good and perfect will of God was being unraveled for him. You and I, we often, when we face danger. We, we think that this thing has just come upon us suddenly. We, we think that just because we have just found out about our struggles or we hear some bad news, we think, well, you know, this is a shock to me and sometimes we almost think it's a shock to God. But he's guiding. He guides us by his counsel, by all that he has planned for us. Everything in our lives has been arranged by the will and purpose of God and nothing occurs apart from God's will. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. How did he see the goodness of God? Because his life was being guided by the counsel of God. And God was guiding him in life. And notice he says in verse 24, you guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me into glory. That God was not only guiding him in this life, but guiding him unerringly for the life to come. I know that when you read many, at least Old Testament theologians, they will tell you that the, the afterlife in the Old Testament is unclear. They will tell you that we do not have a very clear picture of heaven and the life after death by reading the Old Testament. And I think that there was much truth there. But we should be in no doubt that the Old Testament saints knew of heaven, believed in it, and believed that they would be with God. He says that God guided him with his counsel in this life, and afterwards, after death, you'll receive me into glory. God is guiding him and guiding him through life ultimately that he should be brought into the presence of God in glory. And so the two arguments I've been making is for the psalmist, God is his most valuable possession. And God is his most valuable possession because God is the supreme good who reveals his goodness, first of all, in his presence Secondly, by his power, and thirdly, by his counsel, by which he guides us through life and ultimately to glory. 
what can we make of this song? I think that if we are brutally honest, we will confess at some time that the ways of God are incomprehensible. That we do not understand how God works. We can't always fathom why the righteous and those who seek to please God are suffering. We can't understand how those who blaspheme the name of God, who do not have God in their thoughts, who live a life, it seems, ostensibly free from any influence or any kind of attachment to God, and yet they seem to enjoy the best of life. They have the money, they have the status, they have the power, they bask in the trappings of success. But the Christian who wants to do what is right, who wants to please God, nevertheless finds that his life is dogged by many pain and sorrow and suffering. And sometimes, if we are ruthlessly honest, the thought has crossed our minds that it really does not pay to serve God. Because if you are seeking to live a godly life, and what you receive, it seems, is suffering upon suffering, and the ungodly who doesn't seek to please God receives, it seems, more and more of this world's wealth, it does appear that it isn't, there is no profit in serving God. And so the temptation is for us to say, let us eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. To abandon the Lord and abandon the things of God. This psalm reminds us that in the midst of the puzzlement of life, in the midst of the enigma which is life itself, we must draw near to God. Because it is only in the presence of God that the matters which are of real importance are clarified, stated differently. It is only when we draw near to God that our vision is clarified. We do not really see the things that matter. We do not really have true spiritual understanding about life until we have come to God himself. It is only in the presence of the Lord, it is only in the temple that this man was able to see what really matters. And what he realized there was twofold. He realized that ultimately ungodliness does not pay. Because there is only a step between the wicked and death. That in due time, God will cut them down. I don't know if you've ever been in a hospital room and see a person die. Death is like a power, an irresistible power that comes over the strongest and the best of men. And there is nothing that they can do. No amount of machinery, no matter of medical expertise can deliver a man or woman from death. The wicked, the writer reminds us, will be cut down, will be brought to destruction. But it is not mere physical death which is his problem. It is that he will know the terrors of the Lord, a life of eternal separation from God in hell. That what really is shocking is not merely physical death, but spiritual death, to spend eternity apart from God himself. When he went into the temple, his vision was clarified. 
He no longer was tricked by the outward show of splendor and power and wealth that the wicked display. He realized that the ultimate end was that God will one day bring them down in due time. Their feet would slide and they'll be brought down not just to death but to hell. But he also learned something else. He learned that if you were to sum up all the wealth in the world, none of it is comparable to having God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He learned that Jesus Christ is the most valuable possession that he can have. And all of us, none of us can have any greater treasure than to have the Lord. And part of our discontentment in life, it is precisely because we do not put sufficient value on Christ. That he who has Christ has everything. And he who has everything but does not have Christ has nothing. You see, the psalmist could cry out, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none on earth that I desire beside you. God is his greatest possession. There was, a, there was a slogan by one of the banks. You're richer than you think. And you know, if you're a Christian, you're richer than you think. Because you have the Lord Jesus Christ. And having Christ, you have everything. It is how the disciples saw Jesus. They, they saw him as their greatest possession, their, their portion. It's a rich portion. It's an infinite, eternal portion. When Jesus turned to the disciples in John 6 and asked them the question, you know, there, there are people who are abandoning me now. Are you also wanting to leave me? Peter could respond, Lord, to whom shall we go? Because you, it means you emphatically, you have the words of life, of eternal life. You see, Peter realized that there was salvation in no one else. For him, Christ was the greatest treasure. The Apostle Paul who boasted about his heritage and boasted about his achievements, nevertheless, he considered Christ to be his greatest treasure, his portion. And so he could say, indeed, I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ that I may gain Christ. Because he recognized that there is no greater prize, no greater treasure than having Christ. And why is Jesus Christ the greatest treasure? Because it is in him that we have come to know true and supreme goodness. We have seen him in his goodness, particularly in the cross. You see, we delight and we desire Christ above everything else because he's supremely good. And he has revealed his goodness when he went to the cross and took our sins and delivered us from destruction. That he bore in our, in our sins in his own body upon the tree. That he removed the curse of God. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He's good. He's supremely good because he gave himself to deliver us. And he's good because behind the scene, he's working in your life. You see, his presence is with you. 
He's never leave, left you or abandoned you. He's there with you in good times and in bad times. He's there when men will abandon you. He never leaves you. You see, he's good not only because his presence is with you, but because his power is in, involved in your life. And because his counsel is revealed to you. He's good because you are gripped. You are gripped by the hands of Christ. You see, your, your Christian life does not dwell in your grip on Christ. But it is Christ's grip on you. The psalmist says, you grasp me by my right hand. And we have a savior who grips us. We are gripped by his power. He says, my sheep hear my voice, I know them. They follow me and I give them eternal life. And no one can pluck them out of my hand. Why? Because we are gripped. We are gripped by the magnificent and the almighty power of Christ. And you need to know that the troubles of this life would have long ago detached us from Christ if we were hanging on to him. But because he grips us, we are kept and we will be kept. We are gripped. Not only are we gripped, we are guided. He's steering our lives unerringly through this life. He's carrying us along. He's going ahead and he's bringing us behind him. He guides us. We are gripped, we are guided, and we will be glorified because he's leading us ultimately to glory. You and I must choose Christ. We must choose Christ to be our greatest possession. We must see him as altogether lovely, as the rose of Sharon and the bright morning star. We must see him to be the pearl of greatest price. We must sell all that we have and obtain him. For having him, we have everything we need for this life and for the life to come. But if we are to see Christ as our greatest possession, we need a change of heart. We need a paradigm shift. We need a spiritual awakening to be able to appreciate the things that are truly spiritual and truly good. We need a paradigm shift so that we do not love this world for the things of this world are passing away, John tells us in 1 John chapter 2. We need to be continually transformed by the renewing of our minds, by the Spirit of God, to appreciate and to value Christ, whom to have and to know is life eternal. My dear friends, I give you Christ, above whom there is no greater, I present to you Jesus Christ, sufficient for life and for sufficient for the life to come. Christ our all, Christ the greatest and the best. Would you not embrace him? Would you not prize him? Would you not ask God to give you grace to continually draw near to him and see him and to value him and to delight in him and say like the psalmist, whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none on earth I desire apart from you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for not 
being able to see your glory. Forgive us for prizing other things, our health and our families, our money, our jobs, above you. And we recognize that all of these things, though often good in themselves, are not sufficient for our happiness here and our glory in the life to come. But Jesus Christ is our all-sufficient portion. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to see Christ, to truly value him and to desire him. And grant that in the moments of discontentment, when we look around at others prospering, that we may know that we have it all in Jesus. And Father, we pray, therefore, transform our vision. Keep us close to the cross. Help us to continually see Jesus and seeing him, seeing him, and embracing him as our most valid possession. Lord, we pray, change our thinking, change our mindset, and cause us to rejoice in this great treasure who is Christ our Lord. We ask it for his name's sake. Amen.